This episode is supported by Jace Medical. You may or may not know that in December, drug shortages across the U.S. hit a record high. This is causing severe disruptions in medical treatments, resulting in delays, treatment cancellations, and the unfortunate rationing of vital medications. I know that I have heard in the last few months from multiple mom friends of mine, instances where they have not been able to get medications for themselves or for their children in critical crisis moments. This is so, so scary. I know I've had friends with their kids having seasonal flu cold symptoms, struggling to breathe, and they're at urgent care and unable to get the antibiotics that they need because of these shortages. This is scary stuff. Most notably, one of the short supply antibiotics is amoxicillin, which is commonly used for so many of our children's illnesses. So here's where Jace Medical comes in. They have the Jace case, which is a personalized emergency medication kit that contains five essential antibiotics that are used for the most common and deadly bacterial infections. And you can also customize your case and add additional life-saving medications based on your or your children's family's unique needs, like an EpiPen, for example, something that you would never want to be without, would never want to have to run from pharmacy to pharmacy in pursuit of. So if you want to go get these medications and have your antibiotics on supply so that you always have them when you need them in case of an emergency, in case of a disaster, in case of being a, you know, a victim of this drug shortage, Jace Medical will have you covered. All you need to do is go to jacemedical.com and enter the code SHAMELESS at checkout for a discount on your order. That's promo code SHAMELESS at jacemedical, J-A-S-E medical.com, jacemedical.com, code SHAMELESS. This is the Shameless Mom Academy, episode 366 with Sarah Stevens. Show notes for this episode, including any links mentioned, as well as any discount codes from our sponsors can be found by going to shamelessmom.com and clicking on episode 366. Welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm your host, Sarah Dean. I'm here to give you and other passionate, driven, unapologetic moms tools, resources, and a little bit of humor to help you lead more positive, powerful, and purposeful lives every damn day. One of the best things about the Shameless Mom Academy is our community, so be sure to join us in our free private Facebook group to connect with other shameless moms just like you. You can find us over at shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook. All right, let's dive into today's episode. After leaving a career in corporate healthcare in 2016, Sarah Stevens set out to find work that better aligned with her passion and purpose. As the co-owner of Black Pearl Coaching and Consulting, she served as a consultant to small businesses and nonprofits. Through this work, she accepted a position as the inaugural executive director with LeadHer, a nonprofit that connects women with mentors to fuel career and community engagement, a position she holds to this day. In 2018, Sarah launched The Beautiful Project, an entrepreneurial effort that combined her past professional experience with her commitment to pursuing purposeful work. Using the power of collective storytelling, the project invites women back to their bodies, encouraging and supporting them as they learn to use their voice and take up space. When Sarah is not thinking up big ideas for the project, she's shamelessly momming three teens, writing, reading, teaching yoga, and leaning as far as possible into an honest, authentic life. Listen in to hear Sarah share her experience growing up in a body she deemed to be too big and too much, her history of body image battles and disordered eating, how her beautiful project was born out of the moment her doctor prescribed her speed and a 600 calorie a day diet for weight loss why being concerned for a fat person's health is a discriminatory crutch, how she's embracing living in a fat body, how to talk to your kids about fatness and fat is a neutral descriptor, and why thin people must be allies for fat people if we want to create space for all women to live safely in their bodies and in their power. 
With all that said, I could not be more excited to introduce you to Sarah. I loved our conversation. I just felt like we were so on the same wavelength. She has so much power and energy and passion behind what she's sharing. And I really, really solidly believe in her message. This is something part of my obsession with the fitness industry. And also part of the reason I had to leave the fitness industry was because of the damage that it does. And so I loved this conversation with Sarah talking about how we can create safe spaces for all bodies. So please join me in welcoming Sarah Stevens to the Shameless Mom Academy. Sarah Stevens, welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm excited to be here. I mean, I can tell from our pre-interview that we're not going to have a hard time filling the space today. No, I'm pretty sure we're going to be okay. Yeah, Yeah, sure. We already have like 18 things we need to talk about in just like the three minutes we spoke before we hit record. So with all that said, let's go ahead and dive into it all. Can you tell us about the dynamics of your personal and professional life beyond your bio and what you're most excited about right now? Yeah, for sure. So in addition to the bio, I think it's important to point out that I'm raising three teenagers. Oh, gosh. So, right. <laughs> Let's just say that again for the sake of love and grace. <laughs> I am raising three teenagers, a 17, 16, and 13-year-old. And, you know, I think that I get conflicted because sometimes folks will say raising teenagers gets a bad rap. It's amazing. You know, it's amazing to watch them become these people they're going to be. And then other people are like, no, it's really brutally difficult. And I don't know. I think it's both. It really is. This place is both. It's kind of like, sometimes it's like incredible, like fireworks. And sometimes it's brutal, like a forest fire, you know, but it's always fiery kind of. (laughs) So it's like all extremes. (laughs) It's total extremes, like a million and one times a day. And I'm not exaggerating that they are constantly testing sort of my illusion of control. You know, this is making me sweat just like, I'm so sorry. The illusion of control. That's my trigger point right there. (laughs) I've got really good slash bad news. You will be stretched to grow past that. And yeah, but you've got years if I recall correctly. No, I do. I do have a few years. Is he five? He'll be seven in September. Seven. Okay. So you're in the sweet spot. I talk to parents all the time about the spot. It's so magical. It's you are so really... good. I'm like, I really, really need it to stop because I know that I very fully recognize that he adores me and he wants to be best friends. He wants to marry me. I mean, we're going to live together forever. We have a big plan and I know mm. the plan is going to all fall apart at some point. <laughs> oh, it's painfully so. So my hope is that then he just stays in this magical place forever because I'm not willing to let go of it. In my mind, we are getting married. <laughs> Oh, you know what? Stay there. Honestly, I was going to try to burst your bubble, but there's no need to do that. Like live in that blissful place because the inevitability of it all comes to fruition anyway. So I'm glad I didn't know then what I know now. And really what I know now is that while there are things that I've lost in that process that are sad and kind of make me grieve a little bit, I'm also getting to watch them become these extraordinary individuals. And that's a gift. So I'm doing that. That's pretty much like full time, like 1.5 situation where <laughs> I am. I feel like I am on all the time. It's a different kind of on too than when they were little, you know, like yeah. when you would physically chase them around. Right. Yeah. This is like ugh, emotional and psychological. And I was spiritual. just going to say, yeah, like the emotional engagement. It's totally different than chasing. Like there was yes. physical engagement before. Now it's emotional engagement. <laughs> yes. And it is incessant. So that is sort of the personal dynamic that... Yeah is both probably my biggest blessing and also my biggest challenge. The thing I'm excited about right now, 
you know, there's a lot to be excited about. But the first thing that comes to my mind is the U.S. women's soccer team. Oh, I'm, totally. I'm real excited about them. Yeah. So I'm real excited about them. And I think that they are a great example of sort of what I'm excited about underneath that, which is there just seems to be this awakening of women. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm seeing it because I want to see it, which is fine with me as well. Uh, it doesn't really matter. I love watching women wake up and it's exciting and it is what drives my work on a day-to-day basis. So I totally agree. Watching women step into their power and be assertive and be loud and be proud and all these things, all the things that I think a lot of men might be, this is like very stereotypical of me, but a lot of men might be thinking like all these women just being so aggressive. (laughs) Correct. I'm like, Oh, you mean like women who are being like men? Oh, (laughs) Oh, Oh, (laughs) is that what you meant to say? (laughs) Right. Do you mean that we're trying to figure out how to like play by those rules? Is that right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the soccer team has just been this beautiful display of that, you know, and I keep saying beautiful, but it has been really beautiful. of just stepping in to the power of who you are and not apologizing for it. And I can't get enough of that. Totally. Totally. I absolutely agree. So I want you to tell us a little bit about the origin and the backstory of the beautiful project and where that all came from and what's going on with it now. Sure. So like most purpose driven work, I think a lot of times it sort of takes root in our own stories, right? We find this purpose by way of our own story. And the beautiful project is no exception to that. It is what the project is. It's a storytelling collective that invites women back to their bodies. And I'll say a little bit more about that after I kind of get through the backstory of it. So my experience in my body has really driven and dictated the course of the development of the project. I grew up in what I always thought was just a body that was too big or too much. And it's interesting to look back at pictures because what I thought was too big or too much was really just very average. I was Mm -hmm. round through the middle, which, you know, nine-year-olds are generally supposed to be in lots of ways. But like most women that I talked to, I knew very early that being round in the middle was probably too much and Mm -hmm. I needed to do something about that. So my first real memory of knowing that that was true, having that confirmed for me was when I was nine for Christmas that year, I got workout equipment like a mat and ankle weights. And it's funny because for years I told that story and resented my mom. Did you ask for this equipment? I did. So I didn't know this. I didn't know I'd asked for it. So it took me 20 years to ask her to just like get up the courage and say, hey, mom, like what was up with giving the nine-year-old some workout equipment? And she said, Sarah, that was all you wanted because that was all I was doing. And mm. you were just trying to model me, which was such an awakening for me. Of course, I wanted to do what my mama was doing. Yeah. That's how that works, right? But over the time, I internalized that as, see, my mom knows too, there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in the 80s. By the time I was 11, I went to Weight Watchers with her because that's what you did in the Oh my 80s. gosh, I did the exact same thing. I went to Weight Watchers with my mom and I think I was 11, 11 or 12. Yeah. And were you the only kid there? Absolutely. I was the only kid and everyone thought I was really cute. Yes. <laughs> Which and is just like, really embarrassing. Yes. And they all sort of fawned over like, well, for me in my head, the narrative is they all fawned over the chubby kid. And, right. um, and you know, knowing what I know now, I look back at that and I think about I think about what we do to a child's brain when we give them a gold star for shrinking. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like basic positive reinforcement. And I got the message pretty clearly, you know. 
So Weight Watchers at 11, that turned into a full-blown eating disorder by the time I was a freshman in high school. Going into that summer before high school, I was insistent on restricting my calories as much as possible and running, which <laughs> was resulted in stress fractures to my shins and all sorts wow. of things that were going on. But I also, during that summer, I had a softball coach who sat me and said, I don't know what you're doing, but keep doing it. <gasps> you, know, you look oh. good. Right. And how many times have I done that myself to other women yeah. complimented their weight loss? And I have no idea what it cost her. I have no idea what it cost mm -hmm. her. And it, at the time, this man meant well. He thought he was encouraging healthy behavior for me because I was, even at the height of my eating disorder, I still weighed over 120 pounds. That's just the way my body, my body is apparently really insistent on surviving, really, <laughs> really insistent. And I was an athlete too. So, you know, I had that build, that muscular mm -hmm. build. So on and off with periods of disordered eating through high school that really never got attention because, again, I never shrunk to a place that people would go, oh, she's not well. There were other things going on, like I passed out constantly because of oh the restriction. Gosh. Oh, yeah, for sure. But again, it was sort of uh, it looked like I had controlled what could have been a, quote, weight problem, unquote. So I just learned that less of me was better. This episode is brought to you by Seed. Did you know that supporting your health can be as easy as taking two capsules a day? Each daily dose of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is formulated with 24 scientifically studied probiotic strains that support gut, skin, and heart health, helping you start the new year off right. Visit seed.com slash Spotify and use code SPOTIFY25 to get 25% off your first month. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Yeah. You know. Did you desire, and I'm asking this because I have a very similar story to everything you just explained, except for that mine started more in college, but... Did you desire to look fragile, mm, like that level yes. of smallness? Because that was a yeah. thing for me. Like I always was very envious of the kids in my class who, like the tiny girls who sat in the front row for school pictures. I was yes. like, I want to be like a tiny, fragile little thing. And I was like, so not a tiny, fragile thing. Yeah. I remember two things in particular along that line. I remember being behind this girl in Dairy Queen one time, and she was a fragile, like it was the way she wrapped her arms around her. Mm. I remember this with clarity. Like she was able to get her arms all the yes. way around. 
Oh my God. These are the things that you notice where you're like, my body doesn't do that. Do that. Exactly. I would notice like on the monkey bars, like tendons poking out of girls' wrists and be like, when I'm on the monkey bars, my tendons don't pop out of my wrists. Like these are the weirdest things, but this is what, when you feel like you're too big and too much, these are the things that you notice. Absolutely. And I remember that that girl in line at Dairy Queen ordered ice water and, and of course, right. Of course. Maybe a a wedge of lemon. Exactly. Yeah. And then the same thing, I had this friend in maybe grade school, maybe junior high. I remember her getting on the diving board in front of me and noticing the tendons in her ankles and how thin they were. And my ankles will never look like that. Even if I drop 200 pounds, that's genetically not how I'm composed, but I didn't know that. I thought that was because she was thin and I was fat. So I never had a lot of intervention for that. And more importantly, I think is that it was really praised because it was the way that I was controlling my being too much and went away to college. I put on a bunch of weight at college because nobody was hovering over me and then came home and definitely had that experience of like, Ooh, what happened to Sarah? And I'm an overachiever driven person. And so that didn't work for me. You know, mm-hmm. the idea that I came home and had somehow failed to perform and went back to school, met this woman who was super fit. And by this time, sort of what was appealing had shifted from that sort of waif thing that had been happening in the 80s. And now we wanted women to be fit. And that was the ideal. And what that meant still was small body and really shaped more like a man, like a Mm -hmm. V, you know. So this girl was that and I just mimicked all of her behaviors, which really turned into, at the time, I thought I was being really healthy, Sarah, like really healthy. I mean, I was I was in the gym all the time. I was counting macros like it was breathing, Mm. you know, so this constant obsession. But my body looked tone and fit and everybody really loved that. But it was probably consuming about 80 percent of my mental, physical, emotional, spiritual energy. And that seemed okay because, again, I was getting the outcome and the praise that I wanted. And then I got pregnant with my first child. And there was something about the permission to eat, to be full Somehow I felt now like I had permission to do it. And I leaned real hard and real far into that. And since then, I've done a lot of research. And I know that the most likely indicator of binging is restricting. And Mm -hmm. if you want to know if you're going to binge, look at how often you've restricted. So I gained a ton of weight with her. And I remember after I had her. Because you were binging? For sure. It was, yeah, I had restricted so intensely for so long and had this permission that it was my obsession actually was McDonald's French fries. I could not eat enough of them, which was odd. I hadn't like driven through a fast food place in I don't know, years. And that was all I wanted all of the time. She loves McDonald's French fries to this day. So I'm not sure she understands why completely, but I'm still convinced. I'm like, that was me. That was me. You are welcome. Yes. (laughs) So uh, had her I remember sitting in the stylist chair six weeks after I had her and we were talking about how I just had my first child. And I asked the woman doing my hair, I said, so when can I expect to lose this weight? And she just laughed. And she's like, well, my youngest is 27 and this is what it looks like. So I remember like being super panicked about that idea because by that point I was definitely the heaviest I'd been in my entire life. And I just thought, can I go back to what I was doing when I was, quote, super fit? And I tried. And the truth about our metabolism is that it slows down when we spend years and years and years restricting it. And so over the next two decades, we'll just speed that part up. Over the next two decades, I did and 
I don't want to use the word succeeded because that's not what I mean at all. I was able to lose weight on virtually any diet I encountered because I'm a driven, overachieving person. If you give me a set of external rules and tell me that I'll be successful if if I act on those, well, I'm going to do it. and I'm going to do it better than anybody around me. So I did that. But all of those diets required some sort of restriction. And over time, my body just became more and more resistant to any of that. So as that happened, I think in hindsight, I can see that I was sort of panicky about it because I could not reconcile with the idea of this fat body. And I use the word fat as a descriptor. It'll come up again as we talk. So I just want to get that out there for the audience now. It isn't an indictment of my character. It means nothing about who I am as a human being. It's a descriptor of tissue in my body, not different entirely from the fact that I have curly hair. So I had started to reconcile with the idea that the cost or the price of admission here was not worth the ride. So I'd started to play with this notion that if it's going to take my whole life for me to shrink, I don't want to do that anymore. I just don't want to do it anymore. But I also had never encountered people who were living in fat bodies in a way that seemed like actual life. All I'd heard was, how could I choose that? It's not healthy. How could I abandon Mm. myself that way and not care about myself? And so then I started to stumble onto some fat activists, started following Diane Bondi. I'd started practicing yoga. All sorts of things have led to this moment that I'm going to share with you now. So I'm sitting in a doctor's office. It's an endocrinologist because all throughout this too, I had my thyroid had basically quit functioning. So I'm sitting in my endocrinologist's office. She's a friend of mine. She knows different from other physicians I'd encountered. She did believe me because I continued to gain weight for two years in a row, regardless of what I did. And she believed that I was trying, quote unquote, trying, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. And, um, I came in for an appointment. I actually had gotten rid of my scale, so I didn't know what I weighed, but I knew I'd been taking really good care of my body. I'd been moving. I'd been really making intentional choices about food that filled me in a way that felt good and all of these things. So I was excited kind of about hopping on the scale. I got on the scale and I'd gained nine pounds. And so she and I were talking about that. And she said, you know, Sarah, with the damage you've done to your metabolism, And the thyroid issues, the only solution I can come up with really is to just give you amphetamines. And yeah. So so what she's saying to an otherwise healthy person with no other comorbidities is it is important enough for you to be thin that I'm going to give you speed so that you can be thin. Yeah. When was this? It was right before I founded the project. So 2017. Oh, so this wasn't, I was like, oh, is this back when like ephedra was a thing? This wasn't that long. Okay. Wow. Oh my gosh. And it's not even a defense so much as explanation. She didn't know what else to tell me. I mean, it is not in a Western medical model to tell a person who is categorized in the BMI scale as obese that it's okay. Just let it just release it. You know, no, there has to be a fix for that. Right. 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 So the fix was speed. And I would love Mm -hmm. to tell you that I was self-aware enough to say absolutely not, but that's not what happened. I took the prescription. You were like, oh, a pill? Sure. Great. I mean, not to project, but that's what I think a lot of women would say. Precisely that. Yeah. So I got to my car and, you know, I sat in there and I had the prescription sitting literally in my hand. And I was thinking about this pill. Now I had asked her questions like, what are the long-term side effects? How long can I stay on it? And she told me, you'll have to come in quarterly to test your liver and kidney function. Yeah. Most people tell you to stay on it for a month. I could keep you on it for five years if you keep coming in for this liver and kidney function testing. However, the thing you're going to need to know, Sarah, is that given your metabolism, you'll have to 
always probably eat five to 600 calories a day in order. (gasps) Yeah, right. This was the conversation we had. So I'm sitting in my car and I'm like, this pill could fix it, but at this enormous cost. And then the other option that I really saw in front of me was to just find a way to love this body, which felt impossible. I had never been taught how. Mm -hmm. And then I thought about my daughter. At the time, she was 15, almost 16 years old. Right now, she looks the way that the world likes her to look. But I thought about her 20 years from now, maybe with a metabolism that has responded to abusive behavior or any reason at all. It doesn't matter to me. I thought about her sitting in her car, holding a prescription for speed. And I knew what I had to model for her. So the other thing that I knew in that moment, though, was that for me to just decide to live differently wasn't going to be enough, that I needed to bring this chorus of courage together that could sing to her when she can't hear her own music, that could shout at her when she can't hear her own voice. And so from that place, The Beautiful Project was born as a chorus of courage to sing to my girl and to all of us. Because the voices that tell us to shrink in order to fit, they're so much louder than our own single, you know, the friends and family around us who say, no, you don't have to. So I want to bring this chorus of courage together. And the way to do that for me is through this collective storytelling effort. Wow. I love that. I think that's so powerful. And to be able to see the bigger picture when you were facing that decision and see Mm -hmm. the long-term implications like deciding to take speed and letting that be the thing that you model to your daughter. Um, Mm -hmm. That's a big deal. So can you talk about the societal mandate to be small in our bodies as well as small in our lives? Because this is at the crux of why. So I was in the fitness industry for many years. I sold my gym last year. And this was at like the crux of why I had to get out of the fitness industry because I was like, I'm in a place that makes it very acceptable for women to shrink their bodies and for that to be their top goal in life. Not just like a thing that's happening on the side, but it's like your top goal in life is to shrink your body. So let me help you do it. And also while you're doing that, you're like barely able to raise your hand to have a conversation at a boardroom table (laughs) or go for a promotion or ask for a raise or speak up for yourself in any capacity. And so I want to hear your take on all of that as well. I love everything you just said there. That is almost identical to what I'm going to say next, just through my own lens. So do you remember the movie, What Women Want in the 90s, maybe early 2000s? I I recognize the name, but I don't recall the movie. So he has this, by this freak accident, he can hear women's thoughts. And that's the plot line doesn't really matter. There's this scene where he's starting to realize that he has this, this ability now to be able to read women's minds and he's running through the park and this crowd of women is running past him. So he's hearing everything that they're thinking and all they're thinking, every single one of them is thinking some different version of, did I laugh too loud at that party? Did I say too oh. much? Was I too much? And then the yeah. last woman is counting the calories and two pats of butter and one piece of toast and one cup of coffee. And so he has this entry into like what a woman's thinking. And I love that scene because it's perfectly telling and illustrates what you just shared. Yeah. That we believe that we don't get to do the rest of the things in our life until we stop being too much, whether that means shrinking our bodies. And I don't know about you, but when my primary goal is shrinking my body, I'm still a finite person with limits. So if 80% of me is being spent on shrinking, there's 20% of me left for the rest of the world and myself and my children and the things I love. And I think we're here to do more than count calories and carbs. Mm -hmm. I just do. And I think we've been sold short by being told that 
that that's the first thing we do. We shrink ourselves and then we can get busy to do whatever's left over. That's crazy. That is not what we're here for. Right. And like I've referenced a couple of times, the energy consumed to do that is Mm. so massive. And that energy, and this is actually something I was in our pre-interview, we were talking, I was telling you about my friend, Susan Hyatt. And this is something I talked with her about that if you can funnel the energy that you have historically used for weight loss into something else, like you could do anything because it is such a large amount of energy. Yes. It's like you can move mountains. You can follow dreams that are so much bigger and more powerful, which is awesome, but also horrifying because that's an indicator (laughs) of how much time and how much of your life most women have spent focusing on a weight loss goal and shrinking their bodies and trying to look a certain way. Yes. And, you know, if I think about that truth in my own life, about how much has shifted for me energetically since I stopped trying to shrink my body, what that means about the way I take up space professionally and with my children and with my spouse. Now, if I think about that and exponentially multiply it by a collective of women, do you have any idea what we could do in this world? I can't even fathom it. I mean, we change everything that way, but I do think that this obsession with shrinking is a distraction from our purpose. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. So I think this will tie in. I think there's a big cultural crutch around being quote unquote concerned for other people's health. I mean, this has come up in my family for sure, where people will say things about another family member. Well, I just hope so-and-so can like, you know, lose a little weight, you know, cause I'm just so worried about their health. And I'm like, that's bullshit. Like, it is not about their health. This is you being a busybody and you need to like step the heck out and step the heck off. Mm-hmm. And so I think that this quote unquote concern for other people's health is a crutch that people have that is basically discrimination. Mm-hmm. And we are not owning our own discriminatory thought patterns and be- attitudes and behaviors. And so if we can, again, the collective energy that we could all have if we could not be focused on ourselves shrinking and also not focused on other people's quote unquote health because they're overweight. Again, like what could we do instead? Mm. So I'm curious what your thoughts around that, the framing that as a crutch. Mm, It's definitely a crutch. I think the first thing I want to say about that is that we actually cannot determine anything at all about another person's health based on their size. It's literally not possible to write an accurate narrative about that. Myself and my spouse are case in point. She has a terrible diet. And she would tell you that if she were standing next to me, she'd say, I eat a lot of things. I eat a lot of fast food. I eat a lot of food that does not make me feel full or whole or fueled. And she also never, ever moves her body. And I don't know how to not move my body. And I try to choose a lot of things that do make me feel nourished. And if you were to look at the two of us and most people would write a narrative that she's healthier than I am. It depends, first of all, on how you're defining health, right? We've had this really narrow definition. And it kind of circles back to that idea that I can't be anything else until I'm thin enough to be something else. It's the same thing here. Like, I can't possibly be healthy in these other 10 facets of health if I'm carrying too much adipose tissue on my body. It's just not true. So, I did a lot of digging into health at every size, which has turned into a movement based on a book by Linda Bacon. She did a lot of research about health and size, and we don't need to hash all of that out here. If anyone's interested, they can read the book or follow her. But she has a lot of clinical research to support the reality that we cannot assess a person's health by way of the size of their body. 
And I think the other piece of it too, I think people react the way they react out of fear. Mm-hmm. I think it's really scary. First of all, if you're somebody who spent your whole life, most of your life trying to figure out a way to shrink in order to fit, and someone tells you you could still live a happy and full life without having done all that, you're probably pretty mad. I mean, if you look at the way people respond to folks in fat bodies who are living happy lives, there's a lot of visceral hatred. Oh my gosh, yes. Scary, like people who will say, they'll wish these people dead in response to their willingness to just live a full life in the body that they're in. So to me, that says there's something else going on in the human psyche here. Mm -hmm. Why are you so angry? And I think it's twofold. I think the first thing is, is if you've spent your whole life restricting calories and trying to figure out how to get smaller and someone says you could have been happy in another body, Mm -hmm. you're probably pretty mad about it. And I think there's also fear at play because it's that thing in our heads that goes, but what if I let myself go? What if I let myself go? And that person seems to have let their self go. And that's really scary to me. So instead of sitting with my own fear and my own anger, I'm going to judge them Mm because that's a quicker release of my discomfort, you know? Total crutch. Yes. Yes. And this is such a great example of what someone thinks about you is none of your business because Mm -hmm. what someone thinks about you is all about that person, not about you. So Mm -hmm. when the skinny person is fat shaming the fat person, it's all about the skinny person. It's not about the fat person. And exactly what you said, that it's about this woman who's been trying to restrict and be so careful and use her lifetime of energy around this the envy that someone could live in a bigger body and experience joy on a daily basis. Yep. That makes so much sense. It's the only explanation I can come up with because I do still believe in the innate goodness of people. Right. And so it's really the explanation that allows me to continue to believe that because (laughs) if I didn't have another explanation, I would really just think that folks are really awful to have seen and heard. And even in my own experience, I mean, I live in what would be considered sort of a mid-fat body. Uh, There are people who experience much more discrimination than I have. But no, I have my own stories about discrimination for sure. And the only explanation I have is it's got to be coming from their own fear and anger. It has to. Totally. So let's talk a little bit about the use of the word fat. Go ahead and I want you to address it. And then I have something to add in that's interesting from, and maybe you'll touch on it, but from a parenting perspective, when you're walking down the street with a six-year-old who's like, oh, that person's fat. (laughs) So so I'll let you start and then we'll (laughs) take it from there. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're, Amy, more of a, we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, Mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. 
but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. Well, as I've referenced, I work pretty hard in my own life to destigmatize the word, to sort of strip it of all of those moral attributes we've put into right. it. Because when we use it, we mean it synonymous with that person's unattractive or lazy or yeah. any of those things, right? So it doesn't mean any of that. It's a descriptor of tissue in my body. And regarding using it, I teach my kids if you want to talk about the parenting component, for sure, I actually wrote a blog piece called So Your Kid Called Me Fat mm. about how to handle that from the perspective of the person who had been called fat. The thing I want to teach our kids about bodies is that all bodies are good bodies. And yes. I want them to be able to understand that. And I think that when we teach them that all bodies are good, I think they're less likely than to sort of be drawn toward those trigger words to figure out what the adults in the room are going to are how they're going to feel about it, Right. Because I think there is power in being able to just use it as a descriptor of tissue because that is really all it is, you know? Right. And I totally agree. And so I have been conscientious about like, okay, if I can recognize that and be like that person's fat, just like they have brown eyes, like it's just a very neutral term. Mm-hmm. If that's not a universal acceptance of the way that word is framed, then when you're walking down the street with your six-year-old and they're like, oh, well, that guy over there who's fat or that woman who's fat and you're like climbing out of your skin because you're like, we never call anyone fat. <laughs> but then you're like, but actually we yeah, do. Like it's do. very confusing as a parent, I think, because you want to keep it super neutral. And I've kind of mentioned that with my son to be like, they are bigger or whatever, like just keeping it really neutral. But then I also don't want to make someone else uncomfortable or feel targeted because they might not embrace that or frame the word in the same sense. So I think the solution to that with our kids is because I I have to have these conversations with my kids as well, particularly my youngest. He actually is fat phobic. I mean, he would never say that, but he's very protective about any time I use that word in relationship to my body. He'll say, no, you're not mom. You know, Mm -hmm. and I'm like, no buddy, but I am. And you know, we have to talk through it. But I think that in the explanation of neutralizing the word, I think it's also important then to help our kids understand, however, the word has been used to hurt people. Mm, And so to contextualize it and say, it's the same thing with other marginalized people, right? So it's about how do we love labels? And so how do we, but we don't just love labels. We do love to be able to describe folks. Mm -hmm. And so the sensitivity, I think, comes in around the realization that that word has been used to hurt people. And even though he may not intend it to hurt, he should wait until other people identify that way, right? And then, because that for me tends to be the blanket permission, if I'm going to describe myself that way, then you have permission to do it as well. But until we can shift the cultural conversation, I think neutralizing and being sensitive, it's a difficult dynamic tension to be able to hold, but it's important because that's all it's been used to do is hurt people. Right, right. Because my son has brought up a few things about being like, he called himself fat recently. And I was like, what? <laughs> what are we talking? So then I kind of immediately, I mean, like, it was very shocking to me because I was like, I don't talk about bodies and weight in a negative sense. I'm like super conscientious about this. So we were talking about fat and I was like, oh, well, is that a bad thing? Is that a good thing? Or like, we kind of had this conversation about just like starting to neutralize it. But it's interesting because I don't know where he has picked up on this. I don't know if it's something he heard at school or at camp or what, 
that I think having those conversations just like right in the moment and quickly, you know, neutralizing things that maybe or don't feel neutralized in a child's head can be really significant. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's interesting that he started to use that word. I'm curious what he shared with you about why he used that word to describe himself. So every time I ask him to like, tell me something like, oh, well, where'd you hear that? Or who told you that or whatever? I don't want to talk about it. No one, nothing like, so it's very hard to get information out of him. So when he brings things up, I kind of, try to dive in as deeply as he'll go in that moment, but it's often not very deep. So Mm -hmm. it was kind of just a quick, and it's happened, I think two different times now, but where right away I'll say, Oh, well, is that a bad thing? Or I don't mind if someone's fat. I, I, it doesn't matter to me. And I think people can look beautiful no matter what, how big Mm -hmm. their body is or whatever, you know, no matter what their body looks like. And so I just kind of make some sort of quick statement because if he thinks that he's like triggered something in me, he is like immediately ready to move on. Of course. <laughs> yeah. So I just try to give like a quick neutral statement and then be like, okay, and now let's play Legos. <laughs> of course. Yeah. And I think that in that moment though, I think that constant reminder that all bodies are good bodies. And yeah. so you can yeah, think your body's like fat. It's still good. It, yes. It doesn't. I really it's like that. It's still good. That's you know? such a good one. All bodies are good bodies. Okay. I want to talk about your TED talk. So you did this TED talk. What was the talk about and what was the impact? The, it sounds like there was like an immediate impact from the audience. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the talk was called Stripped, The Art of Being Seen. It was about, overarchingly, it's about stepping into your power, but it's not so much just an invitation as it is also a little bit of a how-to guide about how to get there. And what I think about that is that we step into our power when we stop hiding things. So I spent my entire life being worried that people would look at me and see a person in a fat body. And that paralyzed me in boardrooms. It paralyzed me in public presentation. And what ended up happening for me is that I had to desensitize myself to myself. And then I had to find ways to decide to let other people see what I already knew was true. And it was in that place that I was able to step into my own power. And so the the talk really is about it's about a broad invitation for folks to do that and demonstrating it through my own experience. And so as I suppose, uh, spoiler alert, I guess. So I do this and I talk about living in a fat body and about how worried I was about what other people would think about when they saw me. And at the end I say, I've decided to take back the power I gave you. And I was afraid of what you would see when you looked at me because I've chosen to let you see all of me and standing on that stage, I took the dress off that I was wearing And, um, yeah. And so I demonstrated the thing I was inviting them to do themselves. And not only did I demonstrate it, but I did it for myself as well, right. To just stand there in my power. And the talk ended a couple sentences after that. And the first thing that freaked me out was I'm willing to take off this dress, but I'm not really willing to bend over and pick it up at the end. (laughs) Because because that's a good point. I've got limits about what I can do here, right? In front of this audience. Right. Um, You're just like kicking it off the stage. Yeah. <laughs> right. Somebody else pick up the clothes. So I What were you wearing second. underneath? I'm assuming you were uh, completely naked. Brown underwear. Brown underwear. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. But like, I mean, it's really the equivalent of a two-piece swimsuit, right. but we don't see a lot of people in fat bodies in two-piece right. swimsuits right. and we certainly don't see them on a TED stage. So yeah. uh, I stood there for a second and it was silent. I mean, silence, oh my God. which is, I don't even know what I wanted, but as people found their breath again, um, there was this wave of, there were, there were women who came out of the aisles and were just weeping at this idea of being seen that way. And wow. 
or being invited to be able to be seen that way. And there's one story I want to share with you in particular. In the very front row of the TED Talk, and if anybody watches it, you can see it, there's a guy front and center. And when I open up the talk, I use the word fat body right away. And as soon as I did it, I could feel him shift. I use images of people in very large fat bodies in the slides, and it was very obvious that this was very uncomfortable for this man. Mm. And in the beginning, I couldn't believe that it felt like I had a detractor sitting right in front of oh. me, you know? And I knew and I knew what I was going to do at the end, right? So I'm like, I'm going to take off my clothes, and this guy clearly is uncomfortable around fat bodies. And so I'm kind of running this parallel track as I'm giving this talk. Right. He grows increasingly more uncomfortable as the talk goes on. He's like literally rocking. At one point, he laughs. It's not even a funny part of the talk. He is so crawling out of his skin. So I finish. And as I take those last few sentences of the talk, I actually am center stage. So I'm stepping toward him now. And at that point, I felt pretty powerful, right? And it was a little bit of a in-your-face moment for me for this guy, which was great. But then we went to intermission right after the talk. And... I went outside, got my breath. I came into the intermission and this guy makes a beeline for me. And, you know, I was sort of prepared to have the health weight conversation with people because that usually comes up after I talk about anything related to the project. So I was sort of prepared and defensive. And this guy walks toward me and he grabs me, first of all, which I was like, boundaries, that'd be great. Stop touching me. But then he said, I need to tell you something. And I said, well, what's that? And he goes, you are the real deal, kiddo. And I said, yeah, I go, what do you mean? And he said, I was a firefighter my entire life. And I didn't realize until I sat in front of you today how much I hated people in obese bodies because of the strain they put on his bodies. And he's like, I couldn't understand why they couldn't just exert the discipline to be different. And he said, you have changed the way I will see bodies for the rest of my life. And this guy hugged me. Yeah. So this talk, and it's not even a... I don't know what I don't know a way to say this without just being direct about it. This message that came to me to be spoken into the world, it isn't about I realized that I showed up for it all the way and I realized that I delivered it with authenticity and power, but this message changes people when they watch it. It's happened over and over and over. I was flooded with messages after it went live on YouTube. People are still messaging me even though it's, you know, not like trending in the algorithm. So people are still seeing it. And they'll message me total strangers, these women who are like, I've never in my life wanted to be able to stand in my own power more than I want to stand in it now. And so it is a transformative message. And it's an honor to be able to hold space for it and just deliver it. Oh, so amazing. So good. So you mentioned, and I don't remember if you mentioned it in our pre-interview or once we were already on, I think it was in the pre-interview. But anyway, you talked about how thin people need to be allies. And I want to dive into that for a minute because I think that there are people who are listening who live in bigger bodies and have always lived in bigger bodies. And they're like, yes, oh my gosh, like this helps me feel better about my whole life. And then there's thin people who need to recognize the role that we play in being allies in this situation. And I say we in the greater sense because yeah, and we as as listeners. So because so not unlike Black Lives Matter, you have to start with the yes. people who have power. And yes. so if white people have power to elevate black people, thin people have power to elevate fat people. Yes. And I think that that is I'm like tentative to use such a strong comparison because oh, I don't, sure. don't want to yeah. be I don't want to be offensive around any racial 
boundaries for sure. But I also think that they're really, really similar. And I think it might be an appropriate comparison. So I'll let you take that (laughs) and and run with it. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. So I do think it's an appropriate comparison. So long as we point out that the intersection of being marginalized increases with every one of these things. So whether you're male or female, right? And then Mm -hmm. race plays a part and then body size plays a part and sexual orientation plays a part. And so it's important to point out that that the kind of marginalization we're talking about being in a fat body and discrimination, it's real. And that's Mm -hmm. the comparison point. And so it's true that I can go up against another candidate for a job and be equally or more qualified. And because of the internalized bias about people in fat bodies, it is less likely that I'm going to get it because people associate fat bodies with people who are lazy and not competent, right? So right. so that's where there is this beautiful crosswalk of the marginalization there. So yes, we need the people who have power and thin bodies have power in this culture. Even if you don't exhibit healthy behaviors, you're assumed to be healthy and productive and more intelligent. I mean, you don't have to dig far to find the internalized bias research about this. So my invitation to thin allies is to use your power First, use your power to educate yourself about the connection between health and body size. If you're like conscious in this culture, you've been told some things that are not entirely true and are definitely driven by capitalism mm-hmm. about health and body size. Yes. So I'm not going to solve that for you or do that emotional labor. I've done it for myself. But if you're interested, dig a little deeper and then use that education to be able to shift the narrative. You can start with things as simple as, Stop letting people around you use fat as an insult, you know? Right. And that means even for people that we don't like, like, say, theoretically, we have a problem with the president. That's fine. But we don't have to also point out that he's heavy, you know, like when anytime somebody like calls him fat something, I'm like, could we not do that? I mean, this, you know, so use your power in your own circles. So start with your own education because it's important because you do have the power to shift the conversation differently than I do. The reality is you can be on social media, Sarah, and you can eat a cheeseburger and people aren't going to say anything. Mm-hmm. If I ate a cheeseburger on social media, I would literally be slaughtered for it about the decisions that I've made. So right, right. there is a definite imbalance of power and the people in power have to write that. I can't possibly, I'm going to keep advocating, but it's a circle that I don't have access to. Right. This has been so good and powerful. And I know this is going to just be really eye-opening and and thought-provoking for so many people. So thank you. Thank you for your time. Tell people where they can find you, connect with you, consume all your amazing resources, all that stuff. Thank you. Yes. So thebeautifulproject.com, it's beautiful with two L's because the beautiful project is an invitation to be full. So Love that. All, yeah, me too. All of this exists on the website. We have a blog and we have a podcast called Beauty, the Interviews. Those are ordinary women with extraordinary truths about their bodies, about beauty and about belonging. We are on Facebook and Instagram. And Can you repeat uh, the name of the podcast? Because I don't yes. think I have that it's in my beauty, It's beauty with an I, B-E-A-U-T-I. Okay. Beauty, the interviews. It's on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. Okay. And it's also, you can access all of this from the website as well. Okay. And 
you know, we continue to work on our social presence as well, but right now it's Facebook and Instagram and yes, consume all of the content, share your story. That's how we add more voices to this Mm -hmm. chorus of courage. We host guest content on the blog. We host guest interviews on the pod. And then finally, we just started doing live events called the full circle. And these are real live invitations. We've been talking about building body trust and how to do that. There'll be a link on the website to, if you're at all interested in how to bring some of that content to your women's group or to your yoga class or any of that, that'll be accessible on the website as well. Awesome. Oh, Sarah, this has been so good. Thank you. I appreciate this. And I know this is going to be a transformative conversation for my audience. So I really, really appreciate you being here. I really appreciate the invitation, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me in the Shameless Mom Academy today. I really, really appreciate you being here and I hope you learned something new. As always, this conversation will be continued over in our free private Facebook group. You can join that group by going to shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook to connect with other shameless moms just like you. Additionally, if this is your first time listening to the show, know that we are here every Monday and Wednesday with a brand new episode. So make sure you subscribe, go to whatever podcast app you use and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. You can do that directly if you go to shamelessmom.com forward slash review that will put you in Apple Podcasts where you can click on the subscribe button and you can also leave a review. If you scroll down a little bit, you can leave a five-star review. You can write a few sentences letting me know what you thought about the show. If you let me know how the show has impacted you in becoming a more shameless mom, you might be nominated to be Shameless Mom of the Week. Also, please share this episode. My goal is to help more mamas be more shameless every damn day. So please do share this episode. You can take a screenshot of the episode on your phone and then share it out on social media tag me at the Shameless Mom Academy on Facebook or Instagram. I'm quick to reply and eager to send you Facebook love and love to be connected to all of you. So again, thank you for being here. I can't wait to be back here again with you in just a couple days. And until then, no matter what you do today, make sure you do it shamelessly. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact impended. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talked to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep. Oh, get out of their life gunk. 
and let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it.